With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This week's episode of Screen Talk was recorded in front of a live audience at the Canada Goose Base Camp at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival. Hello, everybody. Thank you for being here. It's a thrill to see a packed room when there isn't a movie screening. That takes a lot of commitment, and I'm amazed that you're doing it to watch us argue about movies. So, <laughs> my name's Eric Cohn. I host Screen Talk with Ann Thompson. Just out of curiosity, how many people have listened to that podcast? Okay. It's always nice to know there's somebody on the other side. We're going to do something a little bit different. If you do listen to the podcast, you know that my usual sparring partner, Ann Thompson, is in Oscar mode right now, so she couldn't be at Sundance, and I did invite her to come in via hologram, but for whatever reason, that didn't work out. Fortunately, even with those big shoes to fill, we have some really great NUR folks on the ground here to join me for a discussion about the stuff that we're seeing, the stuff that we're excited about, the stuff that surprises us, and, and really why Sundance Matters, which is the root of what we do at IndyWire. So please join me in welcoming my colleagues, uh, Kate Erbland and David Ehrlich. So we're going to talk for a while, and then we'll open things up for questions. So if you're dying to know about something and we don't get into it, you'll have an opportunity to to throw it in this direction. But just to kind of kick things off here, The thing I always end up asking myself as I go one day after another at this festival, uh, exhausted and cold and, you know, waiting for a shuttle or chasing an Uber is, what are we doing here? Because (laughs) I love it, but then I also think sometimes, wouldn't it be nice to be sitting in a cozy screening room in Midtown and and just kind of having that life of Sundance without all the extra stuff? Um, So let's get into it. Nothing like Midtown Manhattan. (laughs) Because, no, but the thing is, this is my 14th consecutive Sundance, and I do love this festival. I love what it embodies in terms of the excitement surrounding watching movies on the front lines. But one of the things that people don't always realize when they're following the Sundance buzz from afar is that there's something that happens on the ground here that's more than just the movies. So... Kate, I mean, you've been coming to Sundance quite a while as well. What do, you, what do you get out of being on the ground at Sundance that you couldn't do if you were just at home or in that cozy midtown screening room? This is my 11th year, and I was going to say, you know, 11 and a half, well, 11 months out of the year, we are in cozy screening rooms in midtown Manhattan. But what I, I personally get most out of Sundance is seeing a brand new movie that maybe we don't know a lot about, um, maybe starring a few people we kind of know, a filmmaker we kind of know, in a giant theater like the Eccles, and being able to see it with all kinds of people and seeing their reactions and their excitement, because that's, you know, we can live in a pretty insular world when we're just going to press screenings back home, and I just love seeing regular people reacting to stuff. I think it's very special. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, this, this is my sixth Sundance. I thought it was my seventh because uh, I recently had a baby and have lost all track of time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so next year will be my second seventh, I suppose. Uh, I, I have kind of a galaxy brain answer to this question. 
that I'm going to workshop live in front of you guys, which seems uh, like a really good decision. Uh, so I hope you'll bear with me. But I was uh, I was watching a movie yesterday, a documentary called The Social Dilemma, uh, that is by a filmmaker named Jeff Orlovsky, who made films like Chasing Coral and Chasing Ice. And it's a film about uh, that does for climate change, or does for social media rather, what his previous films did for climate change. It's sort of about how social media is because of the business model behind it and the algorithms that make that possible, siloing all of us into our own separate realities. And uh, it begins, you know, as being explicitly political, but there are echoes that sort of waft off of that that you can pick up on your own time, the way that that experience can channel through conversations about uh, your own personal experience, race, religion, uh, where you were raised, uh, what, all sorts of things that, that come sort of distill into the human experience. And there was something about that I idea that made me think that movies are sort of, when they're seen in this venue, in this format, in this arena, the opposite of the, the, they present the opposite of the terrors of the social media experiment and where that could be going. We are, rather than seeing our own realities, even though we often see those reflected on the screen, some people more than others, uh, are there together uh, seeing a shared reality that is being beamed at us. We can sense other people's directions intimately, tacti like tactilely, in our presence. And uh, I think that's an incredibly valuable thing. It makes me feel like movies are sort of the opposite of the algorithm and the kind of way that uh, YouTube and Netflix and all those various algorithmically run platforms are uh, trying to get you deeper and deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole into your own siloed off reality. Uh, but at the same time, and I'm almost done, I promise, uh, I, I think it's incredibly valuable to come to Sundance to see and better appreciate the gaps between us and, and the limits of our own experience. Yesterday, I saw, or two days ago, I saw Eliza Hittman's incredible film, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, uh, which is a film about a teenager from Pennsylvania going to New York and having an abortion. And I uh, have, I come from a very liberal family. I've always been fervently pro-choice. My sister is a reproduction, uh, uh, reproductive rights lawyer, or was in the past. Um, intellectually, I was right there with the movie. Um, I was the audience that it was, or the, the choir that it was preaching to proverbially. Uh, and I loved it, I loved it. I thought it was so essential and valuable and a film that people need to see. But at the same time, coming out of the movie, I saw a, a woman who was completely broken uh, by, by this movie and was like in, you know, in tears and with, with, it seemed, I could only imagine, the weight of lived experience. And it's so valuable, I think, at the same time, even when you can see a film like that and intellectually understand and, and be right there with it, what it's trying to do, to see how it can resonate differently and maybe more directly with, uh, with other people. And to, I think so much of the empathy that we always preach in our line of work and look for in these movies needs to sort of be rewatered by, by those experiences. So you like watching movies with people, like me? Yes. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> that, that was uh, slightly more succinct than my answer. Now that you've uh, covered everything we were going to talk about, let's move on. Um, no, that is fascinating, actually, because one of the things that I think you're tapping into is the, the word algorithm gets thrown around so much these days. Carrie Putnam, the director of the festival, mentioned it in an opening statement associated with the lineup and how festivals provide an alternative to that. The irony, of course, being that Netflix is everywhere here, and the argument that Netflix is supporting a wide range of cinema now is a pretty compelling one, considering 
how many kinds of films it brings to the festival. A movie like The Death of Dick Johnson, for example, this amazing, very personal, intimate story of a woman contending with the fear that her father could die and killing him over and over again in these imaginary sequences. The fact that Netflix made this very bizarre, kind of eccentric thing and is going to put it out into hundreds of territories is, is something that would not have been possible without the kind of climate we're in right now. And yet, the thing that happens at Sundance that I always find kind of troubling is that we see these movies because we're on the front lines and nobody else knows about them. They don't have a track record. And then somebody throws money at them under the expectation that whatever happened here is going to translate into a longer lifespan. So the weekend ended with a lot of that stuff happening. We found out that Neon, through something like 13 or $14 million, who knows the exact amount, at this comedy with Andy Samberg called Palm Springs. Amazon bought a film called Herself. There was a, a midnight horror film that sold to uh, Sony. So stuff is getting bought. And the question we always have here is, is that business decision a reflection of something that's going to continue? Or is it the anxiety of people who are just trying to kind of put something into a bucket and just sort of hedging their bets because they got jobs to do. So let's talk about the films that we've seen that have sold. So maybe we can start with herself, Kate, because you reviewed that. And um, I haven't seen it, but that was an Amazon sale. And last year, Amazon was here and, and bought uh, Late Night for something like $13 million. Movie was not a big success in theaters, although Amazon would tell you that it was a big success on its platform. So what do you make of this sale? Well, it's interesting to me that last year Amazon bought both Late Night and Britney Runs a Marathon, which are really fun movies that I really enjoyed, did not become these tremendous hits for them in the traditional way we talk about box office numbers. Herself is um, very different than those films. It's a very uh, emotional uh, drama about domestic abuse and a woman overcoming that. I loved it. It's beautiful. Um, I'm happy that it's getting a platform and that more people will be able to see it. I don't know how many people will see it because it does sound like a tough sell. Like, I don't know if I want to go to the theater and see this. People should see it. It's beautiful. And with the title like herself, I mean, how can you? <laughs> it's, it just feels like the, the kind of thing that's designed to be lost in uh, scaling through Amazon Prime. Well, I mean, they need to, it could be a herself sure. and they yeah. could zero, put it zero, at the zero, one herself. <laughs> well, and this environment does make you. <laughs> Why not, yeah, exactly, zero, so, some, some ampersands and stuff. I mean, this environment does make you think like a sales agent, even if you aren't one. How would you position this movie if you were getting it out there? What, what is the commerciality of it? I think, for me, the most uh, sort of sellable, appealing thing is that its star, her name is Claire Dunn. She's not very well known in America. She's a theater actress. She also co-wrote it, so I think positioning it more as here is a bright new talent that everyone should know about who you can see her writing, you can see her acting. It's directed by Felita Lloyd, who directed the first Mamma Mia film. So there's a little, uh, you know, no writing there. She knows what she's doing. Yeah. yeah, but I think if they try to position it as, you need to know who Claire Dunn is, that could be interesting. And I think that you do need to know who she is. I was blown away. So David, you saw Palm Springs, this Andy Samberg comedy, which 
is itself kind of an algorithmic explanation for why somebody might want to see this movie, but give us some indication of what might be going on there in terms of the potential for this movie to have a bigger audience. I mean, as someone uh, compared it to as we were walking out of the theater, it's the happy Texas of, of 2019 in terms of its, uh, or 2020, in terms of its uh, appeal in the room. But I do think it's going to have a much more successful afterlife than, uh, than that you know, notorious bomb did. But uh, uh, that is the movie I've seen here that seemed like the most obvious sale. It is a broad crowd pleaser. It is Andy Samberg and the Lonely Island uh, you know, worldview reappropriating the story of Groundhog Day uh, to sort of, I really don't want to give too much or anything away, but sort of as a meditation on the value of a monogamous relationship. It, I, as, uh, and I say this as a happily married man, it really felt like pro-marriage propaganda in the, in the best way. Uh, it's, it's very funny. It's very clever. Um, it, uh, Andy Samberg and Kristen Milanati are great in it. Uh, it is the kind of movie that you might sometimes see get a sort of rapturous response at Sundance and then wilt if uh, not watered in the right way when it hits the, the real world. But uh, it, it is, the concept is so catchy as long as you can sell it without giving it away. And I haven't, I promise. Um, the, uh, the, it's funny. It does feel like it will have a longer life on streaming than it will in theaters. Uh, but I do think with Hulu and Neon partnering together um, and that afterlife sort of already in the cards, maybe Neon will be able to galvanize uh, a response around it. It's a really fun movie for people to go and see together for couples who have maybe been together for what feels like a little bit too long sometimes uh, to go see and remember why they wake up next to each other every morning until they die. Uh, so uh, Sounds really heartwarming. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him going to a late night screening tonight. And it is fun, again, in this environment to be a part of that narrative and, and hear about something like this happen and feel like y you are obligated now to go see this thing and be able to speak for yourself about it. But, uh, but the other thing I think is really interesting about what, what you're describing here is that to me, it just, it just feels like there are so many unknown variables about how these kinds of deals are made and what people are looking at that informs their decisions. Because the way that we scrutinize it is so separate from what it means when you open up the hood and you look at those numbers. I mean, I, I'm a big Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan and I watch it on Hulu. So is there a connection there in terms of if you're a big Andy Samberg fan, this thing will continue to be able to reap those rewards and what kind of dollar signs does that actually equal? And then when the movie's over, it will autoplay another episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine and uh, you'll keep watching. And this is exactly what The Social Dilemma warns against. <laughs> So we're getting a lot of warning signs today about the future of society and all this stuff. Um, but but I actually, I want to shift uh, direction here to a lighter topic, which is diversity. Um, <laughs> at Sundance, everything's a lighter topic. Um, but but I, I think that it's worth getting into it to some degree because the word diversity has become more of a buzzword for our industry. And it's been talked about a lot of times in the programming context as how can we get more diverse programming while Sundance is getting more diverse in its programming. And I always have a weird feeling about it because I was doing an interview the other day on WNYC and somebody asked me about just how diverse this year's lineup is. It's 54%, I think, of the competition is filmmakers of color. We crunched the numbers and said it was almost half of them were had, had black leads. And um, and that is... Was it black leads or just people of color? People of color as leads. 
Um, yeah, slight, slight distinction in terms of um, the stories that are being told. But, but in any case, there, certainly it's, it's progress when you break it down on the number side of things. But it's not like Sundance discovered the concept of diversity within the last five years. <laughs> if you look at the 90s, the legacy of this festival to large a large degree was steeped in the idea of representing voices that are not well represented in mainstream American cinema. So whether it was, you know, uh, some, somebody like Julie Dash or, you know, Lee Daniels. I mean, you had a lot of filmmakers of color come through this festival and gain traction as a result of their films being uh, noticed here. And, uh, and I guess what I'm wondering is now that there is so much intense scrutiny about diversity, when you go see movies here, does it change the experience for you? Do you feel as if there is progress being made in terms of the kinds of films you're seeing and, and the, the way these stories are being positioned at the festival? I mean, as uh, two white Jews and a lady, I think we, we will definitely solve this once and for all. But uh, um, I, no, no, I, 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 uh, I do, uh, I do feel just to to get to the top level of that conversation that Sundance does have a unique uh, onus to be the the sort of to lead the charge in American film. Um, I think. You know, they are such gatekeepers, which is a loaded term, but um, also a literal one in this case for uh, the, the pipeline of American film and like the things that they program, we will see and talk about. And so many of the decisions of, of what a website like ours will, will have an option to cover are determined what the market will have to choose from and put out there and make available to people are determined right here before we even get on the ground. Let me ask you about a film you saw that's in competition because it played so well. Is it, is it Minari? Is, it, is that the way you say it? Somebody else the other day said Minari, and I was like, we're going to figure this one out before the I, end. I will not claim to have the uh, proper Korean pronunciation, but the one that you heard is definitely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Minari. Okay, so, so we're going to go with Minari, this Lee Isaac Chun film that A24 brought into competition. So not a hot sales title. It's kind of smarter for the company to produce it before they come here. Um, but tell us a little bit about a movie like that and why it seems to be resonating at Sundance in particular. Well, it's really, really, really good, <laughs> which is, uh, which is you know, paramount in all of these conversations. Um, it is, I think, you know, everyone is looking for ways to put things into boxes and to apply buzzwords and to understand what they're getting into. And so I think it's really easy if someone wants to take the most reductive stance possible to say it's another Asian American story from A24 uh, that heavily centers on a grandma. Never mind that that was about a Chinese American, this is about a Korean American, this is a period piece. Uh, but, it, you know, they'll probably release it in the same window over the summer and, and so on. But uh, I think that that, I mean, I don't want to get trapped in talking about specificity and universality because I think that can be a false dichotomy, but there's just something so open-hearted and, and raw about this movie, so lived in, it is semi-autobiographical, uh, but it's just like, it's so human. I related it to really strongly. Um, Steven Yeun plays a, a dad who has this American dream, uh, but it's not always in the best interest of his family, and it's sort of his process of figuring out that maybe his American dream needs to be his family and their happiness and giving them a, a better life. Um, and that proving his own self-worth as a patriarch is second to that. Uh, and that, again, as a, as a new dad, I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, with, with no dreams whatsoever, but that's like something that I, I you know, think about. You know that's yeah. not true. <laughs> but something about uh, wanting to be a responsible partner to my wife and father to my son, uh, but still having my own ambitions um, and, and how 
beautiful and heart-wrenching it can be to thread the needle between the two is where I really connected to it. So very quickly, will it win all of the Oscars or some of them? I think it's I think it's a bit. Uh, it's very small. It's an easy movie to set on the wrong expectations for. It's just so tender and beautiful and funny and alive. Uh, I don't think it will be nominated for any Oscars because sadly that's not the world we live in. But uh, you can hear about it at the Indie Spirits, maybe. No parasite, man, just keeps going. But let's not get off track here. Kate, I want to talk about the the gender parody side of the equation because. Year after year, this comes up. Even before we were talking about telling more diverse stories, we were talking about the need to support more women directors, and we certainly still are. But one of the things that I think is really interesting about Sundance Now is if you were to pick a random selection of 10 films you were excited to see, chances are pretty strong you're going to find some women directors on that list. So the festival has certainly made some great inroads in that respect. But what are you seeing in terms of the kind of general progress that the programming has made is it does it seem like it's mostly going in the right direction is there a lot more work that needs to be done there's always a lot more work that needs to be done but i think one thing i like about sundance is if you look at the numbers of female directors it's been steadily going up every year i wouldn't want to see a big jump all of a sudden because that makes me think someone's just trying to check off some boxes and fill some numbers this year 29% of all feature films are directed by a woman. 40% of all films in competition are directed by a woman. And even though it's obviously uh, very much my personal bent and my beat, I think so far I've only seen two films directed by men this year. And they were both bad. One was very good, actually. The other one was not so good. Um, but I feel like... We I, don't have to name them. We don't, we're not going to name them. Um, but I... I think this year I felt more, uh, there's more variety of stories and filmmakers and just things I hadn't seen before made by women that I hadn't seen before. Whereas in years past, it could be sort of the same kind of story. There's very different stories this year. And I think that's what I'm most excited about. There's such a variety and there's such a high level of skill and craft, even from people making their first or their second film. And the other thing I think is really interesting about that is that it, it, it does seem like there is like a natural progression at this festival. Like Eliza Hittman, to come back to that movie, you know, another major highlight of the competition, I think keeps coming back to Sundance to kind of show her progress in a really interesting way that gives the festival currency. It felt like Love being sort of this movie that started in the next section, a real discovery, and then they put her in competition for Beach Rats, which got a good acquisition deal. She won Best Director, and then she said in her speech, look out Hollywood, I'm coming, I remember really clearly, and then made a very un-Hollywood movie that got picked up or produced by a studio, Focus, which is a subsidiary of Universal, and now it's back in competition, which they often don't do with filmmakers, and I always think it's actually a mistake because bringing them back into competition really holds them in higher regard and helps them stand out. So that kind of thing I think is always really fascinating to see too, is just how much the co continuity of a filmmaker's story at Sundance can really play into the, the way they resonate. And I want to say one other thing on that film is that it's opening really soon and March, which I, I question, and maybe there is some sort of algorithmic explanation that we can't see, but this is not a streaming deal, it's a theatrical released theatrical release film that is very well reviewed and seems, at least to me, like the sort of thing that could have a much longer life. So I am sort of curious to see what happens with this movie. I mean, it's played so well here. Has anybody here seen, uh, seen this movie, Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always? 
put it on your your, your schedule because it, it's it's just a really striking piece of filmmaking, and it, it's not a discovery. It's not a breakout. You know, she is really an auteur and should be seen as such. So. You know, we'll see what happens. I mean, my only argument against that would just be, you know, I, the word important to describe a movie or any piece of art is wildly overused to the point of being uh, useless. But that that is the rare movie that seems that feels to me like it earns that description. It's a movie that I would love uh, Americans and particularly uh, young women who may not feel that that certain choices are within their uh, within are possible for them to see as soon as humanly possible um, and I have to be honest if there were any great movie in this film that I wouldn't mind opening on a streaming platform it might be that one just for the accessibility that it would bring How dare you I know I know but uh, um, yeah I think the sooner people could see that movie have the chance to the better yeah I mean I know that you're not you're questioning a March release date. I don't think it's really a summer movie. It's a very <laughs> candid abortion drama. Um, the ultimate counter-programming. <laughs> well, there, there's that argument. But then, you know, it's not an awards movie, although, I mean, as Eric said, Eliza is not tour. She's been doing this for a long time. She's a She grows with every film. But she has two stars who are brand new. Sydney Flanagan, it is her first film. And Talia Ryder, who is the co-star, it's like her second film. She's going to be in West Side Story at the end of the year. So I think, I agree with David. I think the sooner people can see it, start talking about it, thinking about it, and talking about these two actresses and getting them in more things, if that's what they want to do, I think that's a good thing. All right, so moving on from that plug, we want to leave time for questions. So if there's anything you want to know, if you want to argue with us, whatever, we got a microphone coming your way. So we'll start with you up front in the in the awesome coat or sweater or whatever that is. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, I just want to give you a diff couple different perspectives because I was supposed to go see that Always Never Sometimes movie, and because of the shuttle buses, we couldn't get in. But in line yesterday, someone said, oh, you're lucky you missed it. It was painful and slow. You know, so sometimes movies certain people see as great and this and that, some people see as awful. So I'm going to mention two movies that I think are great, one from this year and one from last year, that I think if people really saw them, they would be like some of the greatest movies. But because there's some, they're foreign and there's some subtitles, they don't get most places. So last year, that was the movie The Guilty, um, which was awesome. And the one I saw Friday, which I haven't heard anyone talk about, is The Painter and the Thief. And that was yeah. amazing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm happy to say I reviewed The Painter and the Thief on IndieWire and uh, with second year praise for it. You know, as our, to quote our new Lord and Savior, Bong Joon-ho, uh, from the Golden Globes, you know, uh, sub turn. subtitles are uh, a one-inch tall obstacle for people to get over. And I think you're, you're doing the work by coming to a place like this that to, to help greater audiences uh, get over that hurdle. And I, uh, not everyone's going to like every movie, but that's part of the beauty of this place. It's also it's, it's great that you, you mentioned two foreign language films, or quote-unquote foreign language films, if English is your native language, because uh, this festival has, has done a lot of good work in terms of improving the quality of those films. At first, it was hard for them to attract international films to this festival. And uh, The Guilty, which is now, I think, being remade into an English-language film, 
was a, was a real standout last year, a very interesting kind of innovative thriller. And, uh, and Painter and the Thief is a great discovery. It doesn't need to be seen as a, as a non-English movie. It's just a very fascinating, intimate story about exactly that and completely surprising. So I also just want to say, maybe Kate, you have some thoughts on this too, is that Sundance buzz is so unreliable. And it's, it, it, you can never trust anything because we all like this movie that somebody in the line said was boring or whatever and that person is entitled to their opinion we might be wrong you go on twitter now and it's like you have three people come out of a movie and call it a masterpiece and then 20 people go see it the next day because of that and they hate it so there, there's something really unstable about this environment that makes it really exciting and scary but also if you're not on the ground here it means you can't trust anything so Personally, I find that to be the most amusing aspect of Sundance is that it really is a bubble of sorts, and these movies could have all kinds of new chapters ahead of them or none at all. Well, I mean, I think about, uh, yes, this bubble, especially the Twitter bubble, where, yes, three people can go see a film, three film journalists, and can tweet, it's a masterpiece, and then, you know, other publications, even our publication might do first reactions to TK film, and that becomes the narrative. This film is a masterpiece, and maybe it is, but that's something that's really hard to get away from, and we're guilty of that. A lot of people are. I personally try not to tweet those things because even if I really feel it, it can sometimes be detrimental to very good films that deserve more than a sort of um, an easy buzzword to try to explain them away, especially to people not here who have, have not seen the film, maybe will never see the film, but all of a sudden are like, oh, it's a masterpiece, oh, it's garbage, it's an awards contender. David is dying to wave. Oh, no, I was just saying that that's not unique to Sundance. I mean, every time there's a superhero movie and the first wave of journalists see it and say it's the second coming of uh, the, I'm trying to think of the most asinine superhero I can, but I can't. Uh, and we do a tweet roundup. It's the greatest, it's the Citizen Kane of Green Lantern movies. And we do uh, a, t a tweet roundup of that and then send me to review the movie. And I'm like, it sucks. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I mean, it's always a conversation and that is something that I, I also enjoy about the film uh, discourse in general. It's not always healthy or fun, but uh, it, it is always alive. Uh, so we can go with the front row here. I see a couple of different hands, and then we'll work our way back. Hi. I'm a volunteer. Fifth year. <laughs> Thank you for your work. <laughs> I'm wondering if you all can um, talk about what it means for a film to be successful and then what it means for the directors. I remember um, a few years ago there was a, an article in Vulture talking about what happens to women directors when they come out, when it's like their first film compared to male directors. And then in terms of diversity, um, I mean, when I see pass holder lines, I don't see a lot of diversity. <laughs> and so I'm just wondering like how you all can like think about diversity in terms of like who's here and what it gets filtered through to mean that something's good. I don't know if NDY or like um, what your staff like looks like when in terms of um, reviews, but even then it's still filtered through someone else. And if you don't have enough diverse voices, those do get lost. So it doesn't matter that there might be diverse movies here. What happens to them later? I have a lot of opinions about that, but why don't you start with the, um, the women director question? I think um, you might be talking about a study that came out a couple years ago that was about um, the giant gap between uh, when a female filmmaker makes their first film and their second film. If they make a second film, sometimes there's like a 10 year gap 
And that does not happen with male directors. Um, I feel like we're starting to see that close a little bit because we're talking about it so much more and studios are having to listen and hire more female directors for things. I would love to see that study done in about five years to see what happens, but that's one of the things that I'm always thinking about when I'm here and I, I see a first-time filmmaker who's a woman and I'm so excited for her, but I think about what's gonna happen in the next 10 years. And so, sort of, you know, your question about success, I think, for me, a, a big measure of success, especially for female filmmakers, is if they come here, yes, the film gets bought, but if they start taking meetings with agents and managers and they just keep up that momentum, which in the past has been a lot easier for male filmmakers. A lot of male filmmakers who have had films at Sundance have, you know, their second or third film will be a Marvel movie. They get this huge million dollar deal. And that doesn't happen for a lot of female filmmakers. It's changing. This year we're having four superhero films directed by women, which that's not the only measurement of success, but I think it's a very obvious measurement of success for general audiences. Um, so I think it's changing. I remember that study. I hate that study. And I want to see it in another few years because I hope it changes. Um, I'm incredibly invested in conversations surrounding the diversification of film criticism. It started with workshops that I was doing at film festivals in Europe about a decade ago. We would have uh, young writers from around the world and different kinds of backgrounds come to a festival environment and basically learn how to work here because it's not just a question of somebody getting here. It's about figuring out the nuts and bolts of it. It's really an educational issue. Um, and you, I think, see it in the reflection of uh, films and in, in the reviews that come out of a festival. Absolutely. And as Sundance has diversified, it's been um, clearer than ever before that this is something that needs to be addressed across the board. Because it doesn't really make a difference if you have a very diverse lineup and one sort of monogamous crowd writing about it. Uh, with Chaz Ebert, Roger Ebert's widow, we created something here a few years ago called the Ebert Scholars Program where we would bring five critics to this environment and uh, they came from diverse lineup. The first year was five black women, uh, one of whom is Hunter Harris, who's at Vulture right now. Um, so there's a lot of very interesting uh, path that came out of that. Now, that while, while that program is no longer around, uh, in recent years, Rotten Tomatoes and Netflix have both stepped up to invest in uh, bringing uh, diverse critics to this festival and giving them stipends. So while the pass holders may not be as diverse as we'd like to see, it, the press corps is sort of getting there. And I think the next step is going to be really making sure that the people who come to this environment to write about movies and champion them are also getting those opportunities outside of the festival bubble. And it really is sort of the onus on media publications to diversify as much as possible. We're trying, it's not easy, but it, but it does, it takes time. And the reason it takes time is because this kind of work does require a lot of educational initiatives and, and the ability to kind of be aware of who wants to do this work in the first place. But it's a really important question to ask. So. I just wanted to think, of, I wanted to mention one thing. We do, at big festivals, we'll do a big critic survey at the end. And the past couple of years, the critics that we've included on it, it's there's been so many new up and coming young critics. I feel our list, and this is just our list, is more diverse than it's ever been. And there's still a lot of work to be done. We can do a lot of work, but I'm always happy to see a lot of exciting new names when we send out those emails. And then we can do a big post about what they liked and their favorite films and favorite performances. So that's one small thing. You, you can see it. It's, it's, the results are, are, are not as exciting as we'd like to see you know, in the immediate future, but the progress is happening step by step. And I think 
what may happen in the next year or two is that more and more people are going to become aware of these opportunities. So, you know, if you've ever thought about writing about movies, there's nothing that should be holding you back. Yes. Um, speaking of writing about movies, um, I'm curious if you have any opinions on Letterbox and and using that instead of, or in relation to IndieWire and posting different things on that because I know that one of you is very active on Letterbox. We have the number one Letterbox guy. <laughs> so I was just wondering what your opinions of of Letterbox were. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that's a big question. I. I I think Letterbox is, uh, like anything on the internet, uh, a potentially wonderful thing. Um, I think to have a community of, of engaged cinephiles who um, are being encouraged on their own to write about films. I know so many critics, critics of all backgrounds, um, who have started writing about Letterbox because it seemed like an available pathway and then leveraged that into writing professionally somewhere else. Um, and because of the social element of Letterbox, it really is conducive to people seeing their work um, and having a, a body of work to show. Um, everybody uses Letterbox for different reasons. Letterbox is full of the same trolls you'll find on any other social media platform and the same toxicity. Um, I use Letterbox very uh, at a remove. I just post the first two paragraphs of my IndieWire reviews with a link, um, and uh, for the most part, um, uh, but it is, I really enjoy seeing the feedback that comes back from that, the, the comments on those. Um, there's a very involved and engaged community there. Um, but I, I mean, I think Letterbox is helping codify into the future in a world where where film, as a, the definition of film, seems more unstable than ever. That movies are a coherent, valuable thing that are worth centering around, like a, a you know a, a thing for us all to sort of orbit around. Um, and I think that. Uh, there's something, even when the conversation turns ugly, as it often does, uh, I think there's something really nice about that. I'd just like to say, if you read David's reviews on Letterboxd and there's a link to IndieWire.com, please click on that there, link. There is. I am often uh, mocked on Letterboxd for uh, ending every sentence with, read the full review on IndieWire, <laughs> and then uh, linking it. You mentioned the uh, 90s being sort of a legacy era for this festival and how it sort of saved its reputation as like a bastion for independent cinema. And um, I guess perhaps probably the biggest name, uh, Mr. Sundance um, of that era that was most synonymous with success here was probably Quentin Tarantino. And he recently said that uh, this past year was a war for cinema, the big budget temples versus the indie flicks and the, you know, the lesser known films. I'm wondering if you would say that that was a fair assessment, would you frame it as a war? And if so, would you say that Sundance is probably the most important um, festival in terms of keeping those big budget, big budget uh, wolves from the, from the door? Well, I think it's, it's always a battle on some level if you're trying to do something that's not associated with the bottom line. But Quentin's in his 50s and likes to rant about things being harder than they used to be. So if he listens to this, which, believe it or not, is actually possible, I'm sorry, but I think that it's not any better or worse than it was when somebody like him started because the, the reality is that what Sundance did was it created an actual market and enthusiasm around the possibility of discovering talent and getting it out into the world. But it was still really hard to get people to go see those movies. And, and unfortunately, as, 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 as much as there are some negative connotations to the Miramax brand, what Miramax did at this festival in the 90s was really important in terms of creating a, a life cycle for movies beyond Sundance. And a lot of other distributors kind of came on board during that time, some of whom are still around, like Sony Pictures Classics, for example, which uh, took on Richard Linklater's film. 
And uh, a lot of the filmmakers that came out of that environment struggled as the ecosystem evolved and it became a much denser climate to stand out from the noise. There's more TV and streaming and all that kind of stuff. But what that side of the conversation, I think, doesn't really capture is that other generations come up in that uh, kind of normalcy, that, that it's basically this is, this is the way things are. They, they see that as normal. And so for them, it's not like it was easier at some point in time. That's just what you have to deal with as a storyteller. And I think because of all these different entities, there's there's such a, I hate to use the word, but there is such a enthusiasm surrounding uh, content. Everybody needs stuff to put out into the world. So if you have something original to make, it's it's probably going to have some kind of interesting life. And not every filmmaker likes to come out here and hustle and get an agent and do all that kind of stuff. But you walk up and down Main Street and you look at all these brands, a lot of people want to get things out there. I went to an amazing activation for Quibi the other night, which, by the way, stands for Quick Bites. Uh, it's not Quibi or whatever. So uh, you got to watch two hours of content, quote unquote, on your on a phone there. And uh, some of it looked more appealing to me than others. But a lot of it suggested to me that if I was an up and coming storyteller right now, I would want to work with these folks because they're throwing money at people who have stories to tell. And as long as you're willing to kind of work with the kind of idiosyncratic nature of watching something on a cell phone, uh, you can do something really cool there. I'm not gonna expect Quentin Tarantino to make a cell phone movie. But I think that there is an argument to be made that there are probably some storytellers out there who are going to make great ones. So, uh, yeah, yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah, Just the microphone so we can get it on the record. Yeah. Speaking about uh, storytelling, this is my first time at Sundance, and I'm very impressed. Uh, I tend to like documentaries and stories that are based on truth. You know, Iron Bark, for example, was a great one about the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, the dissident. And... The dissident, it just, it really hit me. I knew a little bit about this, the journalist who was murdered. But this is, these, these are changes in our society and there's stories that need to get out there. Uh, I wondered what your opinion about the dissident was, if you've seen it. It's showing seven times at this festival, which is pretty phenomenal. And I do sense that Robert Redford still, you know, he has a, he's very political. He has an influence in the festival. Thank you. Did either of you see The Dissident or just me? You saw I, I didn't. Okay. No. Okay, so I'll, I'll talk about The Dissident. I mean, I, I thought it was a very uh, powerful piece of filmmaking, not necessarily from a creative standpoint, it's very straightforward, but just in terms of what it captures with respect to Jamal Khashoggi's murder by the Saudi Arabian government and, and not only why that happened, but how it happened, how, it, how there was this assumption that they could just cover it up through the various tools at their disposal. Hillary Clinton was at that screening, and I thought it was really interesting to see that there, that uh, you know, major uh, influencers would want to pay attention to this story right now because it says things about our society that we are all too ready to ignore because we don't have those problems in our face all the time. And to some extent, I think, uh, because of ignoring those problems, we have more problems. Being at this festival uh, when Trump was inaugurated was a really interesting moment because you could feel it. You know, having having Redford around and talking about how you know it was almost like a, a wake or something where he had to like give a speech at the opening press conference to console the crowd. He said, you know, presidents come and go, but we have to be uh, strong and all this stuff. And and I think 
one of the things is uh, with uh, Sundance, you know, pretends to be apolitical because of the nature of its uh, responsibilities as as a nonprofit. But it's very clear that if you are in this creative community, you probably have some issues with a lot of the things that are going on in this country right now. And so there is a real imperative for filmmakers to try to reflect that in some kind of way. And what I've enjoyed about this year's lineup is that you see it in a lot of different facets of the lineup, not just the movies that are very you know, transparently about something that you read in the newspaper. There's this documentary, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, which is set in 2016, right before the election, in the last night of the, this bar before it closes. It's actually not the bar that they say it is, so there's some trickiness going on behind the camera, but that's part of the, the kind of the, the appeal of the film on some level, it's kind of about America feeling like this, this sense of abandonment. And I think the fact that we're seeing this in so many different kind of stories is allowing us to kind of hold our culture up in a vial and sort of assess where we're at right now. I, I just want to say, though I'm sure I will live to regret saying this on the record, that the most politically galvanizing documentary I've seen here was Lana Wilson's Taylor Swift documentary, Miss Americana, uh, <laughs> um, which uh, uh, is... I think, uh, is, again, a film coming out on Netflix uh, next week, this week now, um, but I think could do more to have a direct impact on uh, the results of the next election than any other piece of pop culture uh, in, the, in the near future. I'd be a little more straight-laced and say everyone should see the documentary The Fight, which is about the ACLU, which interacts very literally uh, with President Trump and many of his policies, and which I very much enjoyed perhaps more than the Taylor Swift documentary. Not possible. <laughs> there are no cats That's in it. That's a whole other podcast, folks. Yes, sir, right here in the beard, and then we'll go to the back. Um, I see you all as advocates of film as much as critics of film. Is there anything you wish you had more from audiences? Is there anything we wish we heard? I'm sorry. I didn't or had more from audiences? I'd yeah. say curiosity. Uh, I think the, the passion is there. The intensity is there and the attention is there, but uh, I think, again, not to beat a, a horse that I've killed on stage in front of you all, but to go back to the way that I was talking about social media, um, I think everyone is, because of forces that are bigger than all of us, pushed deeper into their trenches um, and acts sometimes reflexively to the discourse, and, and uh, I, I think without waging a prosaic argument about coming together instead of pulling apart and sound like a politician. Um, I do think that more uh, uh, a curiosity to read critics who you don't necessarily agree with. Um, that's always people say, I like that critic because I agree with them. And I've always found that to be a really faulty uh, way of finding voices that are gonna resonate with you. Because um, I like to read critics who just, I, I like how they think, I like how they see the world. I like that they represent viewpoints that wouldn't maybe come naturally to me. I always say consensus is boring. So that's, that's my answer. I mean, in the same vein, um, David mentioned this before too, uh, wanting to engage more with foreign films and films that are subtitled. Last night, Downhill premiered, um, and I started my review by invoking our Lord and Savior, Bong Joon-ho, and his comments about not being afraid of subtitles. Downhill's fine. Force Majeure is much, much better, and more people should go see it, and I hope if someone goes to see Downhill and they like it and they want to see where it came from, they'll go and watch Force Majeure. I think the thing I would want from audiences is a, more of a willingness to be uncomfortable because there is a certain conservatism that festivals that are open to general audiences tend to attract. And it, it's a little bit elitist to talk about Cannes in this context, but I think it's fine because Cannes really changed my life and my perception of 
film and how it goes out into the world, largely because I was watching so many different kinds of movies that may or may not have a chance in this market. So many distributors were afraid to put them out there. And even if we are in a somewhat different climate now, it still, it still feels like there is a, a real reticence to take a risk on something. And I would just ask people, if you see something that makes you feel uncomfortable, ask yourself why and whether or not that's actually a bad thing. It's a, there are bad movies. There are movies could have bad dialogue or do something that you think is immoral or whatever that is, but question those kinds of judgments because walking out of the movie is usually not the answer. There may be something there that if you engage with it, if you open yourself up to it, you'll recognize it's actually a, a serious accomplishment. And that's why these festivals can be a little risky for movies because audiences can, are fickle and they can rebel against something because they're trying something different. Usually if something's trying something different, I get excited about it. So I saw a hand in the way back then. So to touch on the question about the dissident and to tie to documentaries like The Social Dilemma, do you find that um, certain stories are better fit for a documentary for mass awareness and for digestibility? And then do you also see elements like contemporary fiction in features and things like that having the possibility of broadcasting that to a greater audience? Well, there's a film here called Assassins, which is about what happened two years ago, uh, some of you may remember, or three years ago now, when two young women were coerced into murdering Kim Jong-un's brother in, a, in the middle of the Malaysian airport because they thought they were on a Japanese television prank show. And it's the kind of story where you're like, what? And we all vaguely remember it happening, but because of the way that the, the news flows in our, uh, our crazy world these days, that can feel like it doesn't stick with you necessarily. It's like watching that movie, it's a very straightforward documentary. It really doesn't do anything but lay out the facts with incredible access. But I appreciate it in that context just because it it reaffirmed for my brain in, in a way that will actually stick, in a way that the insanity of that story didn't the first time, that this happened, that this is real life. And there is value in that. And I think that as amazing of a movie as that could and maybe even should be a movie as a, as a narrative feature as that could or, or maybe should be one day, uh, just to see it in this, this uh, you know, purest possible form injected into the part of my memory that will remember it, I thought was uniquely helpful for the form. I was just writing about how 10 years ago at this festival you had these two movies that premiered here that were ostensibly documentaries, but they were not programmed in documentary sections because I think the programmers weren't sure if they were real or not. One of them was Catfish and the other was Exit Through the Gift Shop. And, uh, and it was really fun to talk through what those movies were and what was credible about them. But I, I actually really liked both of them and thought that the conversations around whether or not they were real spoke to their themes, one about social media, the other about kind of the authenticity of of art, essentially. And uh, and now we have all kinds of different movies that are, are sort of pushing the form in new directions and doing things that I think could actually wake people up to the issues at their center because they're taking these bolder swings. There's a film called I Carry You With Me from Heidi Ewing, who's a documentary filmmaker that I think is worth checking out because what it does is it's it kind of started as a documentary project about this Mexican immigrant, undocumented Me Mexican immigrant who went across the border 20 years ago and now owns a successful series of a group of restaurants in New York. Um, but it starts in the past, so it's a sort of like this period piece. And then as it gets to the future, becomes this documentary. So it's not really reenactments. You're really watching a narrative feature that becomes a documentary. And in theory, opens up this uh, conversation about the immigration crisis to something that I think is more intimate and um, 
humane than just talking about what's going on at the border. Because yes, you have the border crossing, but you have everything that comes next. And, I, and it's exciting to see films and filmmakers that are thinking in bigger terms about how we can make those sort of conversations resonate on an emotional level. I think we have time for just one more question. So let, I, I want to give some love to the background. So I'm going to go over there. Hi, um, I'm a senior in college. I'm graduating in the spring and um, I'm studying filmmaking, specifically producing. And I'm just curious, as a young filmmaker, what advice you guys might have for continuing to push boundaries and you know, move forward instead of backwards? Oh man, that's a you whole other podcast. I, I, I did go to film school. I, uh, I dropped out of film school. Um, <laughs> I, I, wow, I think... I think that, I, I hope this isn't too broad and generic to be helpful, but I think the biggest thing specifically for someone coming from film school is to remember to be yourself. Uh, I remember sitting in film school and you're taught all of these potentially helpful ways of thinking about story uh, and, and uh, what needs to happen in a story and what the lifespan of that story should be. And I think the first thing that goes out the window in those environments sometimes um, is who you are and what you bring to the table uniquely. I mean, this is an industry, but you are an artist, and uh, the value that you have as an artist is unique to you, and um, it doesn't have value if it isn't. So I think that it's just not compromising. I mean, you will compromise, it's inevitable, but uh, try your best to compromise in your own terms, and uh, just, yeah, not just not making choices that feel in, like they're in bad faith for you because you feel like it's what the world is telling you you have to do and not what feels right. I have something that uh, maybe even 10 years ago would sound kind of Pollyanna-ish, but is now more true than ever based on the kind of technology we have and you've got a camera in your pocket. I think there was a panel a couple weeks ago where someone asked Ava DuVernay, what's your uh, best advice for a young filmmaker? And it was, go make a film. You, you can now in a way that you couldn't before. And I think that's the most important place to start. Go make a film, and then go make another one, and just keep doing it. Amen. Yeah, I know. As Mark Duplass has always talks about how they had that short film they shot. It was like one take that they shot in like a couple hours for like you know five dollars or something, and that launched their career and got them into the festival world. But the thing that, that's always tricky for me about that question is that I don't make movies, so it's it's hard for me to speak about the kind of the creative challenge, but I have taught filmmakers and I think one of the things that I've learned is that there is a real gap in terms of understanding the practical challenges of getting your movie out into the world. And knowing yourself is knowing whether or not as an artist you want to be a part of those practical challenges. If not, then you need to find people who want to em embrace them for you. So that means good producers, knowing what a publicist can do for you so you're not having to do all that stuff on your own. Understanding what a marketing plan looks like. If you make a movie, pay attention to the stories we do on the site about how movies are released that even if you don't care about box office figures because it sounds like it's antithetical to the art form this matters for the survival of the art form so you do need to know about it and the savvier you are about understanding how this art form exists in the more the world the better chance you have of really making a difference in it I, I think just to echo what Eric was saying pay attention to what you enjoy about the filmmaking process uh, and follow that and I and just remember that when you make something that is a thing that exists that can be commodified in some way uh, for ill, but also for good. Um, I would always say, making short films, that unlike my friends who were musicians, when they cut a song, that song had the same sort of intrinsic value as the Billie Eilish song on the radio that is getting a zillion plays. It's the same you know, thing, it's the same genus of thing, but when you make uh, a short, 
and this isn't as true anymore with all the online platforms that are out there to disseminate this stuff, but it was categorically different than a feature that could be sold at a festival. Um, so when you make a movie, even if it's not something, and again, I want to stress this is now true for short films, I think more true than, than it was before. Uh, when you make anything, you now have a huge advantage over all the other people who didn't make anything. <laughs> and uh, it is something that, even if it's not your masterpiece, you can put out there to get the ball rolling. Don't let Twitter mess with your head. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for sticking around. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.